welcome to Fandom Media. All right, Fandom Media back with coverage of episodes 8 and 9 of Black Sails. That includes the penultimate episode of Black Sails. And this is our penultimate episode of Black Sails coverage. So things are lining up nicely, just like they are in the show. A couple of quick shout-outs before we dive into the material. Thanks to Thomas Nupersong for our intro music. Announcer Jason for the voiceover work. And a shout-out to the Black Sails Wiki for helping us fill in some details. And a shout-out to you, the listeners. If you could take a moment to give us a rating on iTunes, leave a review and or rating. It helps to get the word out. helps a small show like us get going. Kind of bittersweet, isn't it, Sean? These uh, episodes have been really good, but at the same time, we know we're almost done. Yeah, it's awful and amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, am so enthralled with this show. It's such a, an intriguing adventure. It's, you know, like the scope of it and the visuals of it and the romance of it and the gruesomeness of it the tragedy of it everything is so exciting i feel like they easily could have got two or three more seasons out of this material i still have this hope in the back of my mind i haven't done any research toward it but i have this hope that they'll continue this with treasure island this series that would be so awesome that would be really something meta elements so the main creators behind this show have been the writers for these past couple episodes along with many other episodes Jonathan Steinberg and Robert Levine. And one of these episodes was directed by a first-time director. She's done all sorts of cinematography for all kinds of different movies and TV shows, but Uta Brisewitz was the actual director for episode eight. And episode nine was Steve Boyum, who has done many other episodes of Black Sail so far, one of the more veteran directors on the show. Kind of interesting to see someone who hasn't directed an episode of the show before direct one of the last few episodes, but that's cool. Certainly it was a good episode. Also want to acknowledge actor Winston Chong. That was the samurai guy, for lack of a better description, uh, since he has no lines. And interestingly enough, he appears in 35 of the 38 episodes of the show, which puts him in like the top six or seven, more even than Billy, for mm-hmm. example. A little bit of trivia. He and his brother own a martial arts and fitness center in Cape Town, South Africa, which is where they both grew up for most of their lives. So he is not just an actor. He's got legit skills. Also, I have read Treasure Island since the last episode we covered and learned a few neat things. I was looking for extra details, wanted to immerse myself as much in the world as possible. And, well, I don't want to spoil anything, but I did pick up one cool nugget that I'd like to share since it's not spoilery and it is fun. According to the creators, Treasure Island takes place about 20 years after the events of Black Sails. And at some point in the timeline, Captain Flint is going to die. Now, it could be in episode 10, it could be in During Treasure Island, it could be referred to in Treasure Island, so that's not a spoiler. Well, maybe it's a spoiler for Treasure Island, but hey, that book's been out for 130 years, so you've only got yourself to blame. <laughs> I think the spoiler rule passes after maybe yeah. uh, 125 years, yeah. so that's, that's five years uh, in, the, in the clear there. It passed right after Black Sails began. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the line he utters, he's known for uttering uh, w- around the time he dies, includes the name Darby McGraw. And the show has given him the name James McGraw. Captain Flint, James Flint, is a suit as a name that he takes for himself uh, based on this mysterious man that appeared on the docks. The story he tells back in season two, I think it was. Anyway, so there's a little connection for the name McGraw. So, of course, there are certain characters from Treasure Island that we would expect to survive Black Sails. Obviously, they're at liberty to make some changes if they want. But really, they've killed off so many characters the last few episodes. Really, we're kind of left with these core characters. There's not many left that they can kill off. So there's a few that, you know, maybe we're worried about. But we'll see how it goes. 
worth noting, they've killed some core characters off, too. It's not like only the core characters are left. Only some of the core characters are left. True that. Narrative. All right, we'll start with Nassau. We have Woods Rogers. He's kind of losing his tenuous hold on things. He's confronted and told that he might be facing mutiny. And he's told they're losing faith in him. And this might be why he pushes with extra ruthlessness and kind of breaks this deal with the pirates, kind of, you know, tricks them and slaughters them. And might be because of this pressure that he's 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 doing that. Because we can see that he he still kind of waited till the last minute. He he was he saw it as a last resort. He still tried to bargain yeah. with Mahdi. Yeah. Proof of that he's losing control comes pretty quickly when Mrs. Hudson betrays the information about this plan to go to Skeleton Island to Mrs. Mapleton, who immediately goes and tells Jack, and that's how Jack gets on track to get involved and have everything line up like that. So central to these past couple episodes has been Skeleton Island. This is the place where in Treasure Island, the treasure is. (laughs) And there's a lot of mystique built up around this island. We learn that it's hidden, that it's not on any map or not on any known or accepted maps. Maybe a few people here and there have knowledge of it. It's a place that is best kept secret. It allows for meetings and transactions that may not want to be known by others to occur. You know, a secret place for underhanded dealings to go down. I like how we got different perspectives on Skeleton Island from different characters telling the story from different times throughout the two episodes. Mostly episode 8, but a little more in episode 9 as well. And different points of view were given on it. And so we kind of got a rounded out picture of it, which was really neat. All of them seem to be spooky though there seems to be an element of danger it's even the reason that they're supposing rogers chose this location because it's a place that might put everyone on edge yeah and he's right it it does put them on edge and in fact these very fears are expressed by the character ben gunn to de groot who had earlier gotten part of the story from de groot who was an elder pirate and so he first got the story from him and then told him that, hey, you know, I, I thought I heard the voices. And DeGroote tries to calm him down. He's like, look, that's not a thrill. Don't worry about it. You know, keep an eye out for the real enemy. Next thing you know, the ship's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was neat as Flint is telling Dooley the history of the island. Dooley almost seemed spooked by it. And Flint at the end, he's like, but, you know, it's just a story. You know, it works. It works. But don't be spooked. Don't, you know, I need you to be clear headed here. And of course, Dooley is sold on that because he was a little spooked. He's like, yeah, I guess that does work, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And of course, all of this also revolves around the life of Henry Avery, who was a real historical figure and a real pirate, a successful pirate, which made him a legend amongst pirates because he actually got a lot of loot, got out, retired, which is something that a tiny fraction of pirates in the history of the world have managed to do, which is to actually retire with their loot and have a successful retirement. And all their limbs. Yeah, right? (laughs) Now, Avery also not only is a legend, but he's the key to how a lot of the characters locate Skeleton Island. Billy tells Woods Rogers how to find Avery's journals, and then Rackham encounters an old man that sailed with Henry Avery and is able to tell him how to get to the island. So everything revolves around this Henry Avery figure. And speaking of you know not getting out alive, not having a retirement successful, it doesn't look like really any of the characters here are headed towards success. Like yeah. you know, everyone's either lost 
some the most important thing in their life or has completely failed or is maimed or is in a horrible predicament or you know only one person knows where the treasure is yeah. you know <laughs> there are a few characters that have hope and some of them even have realistic hope especially in Philadelphia things seem to be on the upswing for Max yeah we have Adele telling Anne that she killed her friend Charlotte this is an interesting scene. It again kind of shows Max's loyalty to the people that she's either friends with or that work for her or that are loyal to her. And this really shames Anne because Anne was just going to leave. Finding out that Max stood up for her and kept her from being killed. Adele was like, I could have had you killed easily. And I didn't because Max said so. And I could have still done it, but I trust Max. Max and I have a good relationship, basically, and that's how much she means to me, and you're going to leave her? So. I thought that was a really great scene. I really liked that. It started off with Adele asking Anne if she needed anything, and she said, actually, yes, I do. And then the next scene we see, she has bread and a knife. And so you're sort of led to believe that's what she asked for was bread, but with bread comes a knife. And then I, in my mind, I thought Anne was having suicidal thoughts. So for a moment, I thought that she was looking for a way to get a weapon. And even though there's not a threat around her, her life is kind of falling apart. You know, she's sort of this independent warrior. And now she can't even use her hands. In my mind, I thought she was like, maybe going to kill herself. You know, she was looking at the end of her life, but pretty quickly realized, oh no, that's not it. She wanted information about ships. She's trying to get out of there. It's Which, kind of similar. It's not, this, it's obviously not nearly as severe as killing yourself, right. but just, you know, running away and abandoning all these people yeah. and these relationships. Is... Her sort of independence, she's lost it. You know, she doesn't like this idea of being dependent on people, cater to, locked up in this room, nursing. She wants to go out and be an adventurer. It's just, just nothing's what she wants. And then this is when Adele's like, look, man, Maybe this isn't what you want, but everyone doesn't always get what they want. Lots of people have made lots of sacrifices for you, even. You kill my friend, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Anne maybe kind of like uh, reevaluates, you know, maybe I maybe I should suck it up, you know. It kind of was a challenge to her, and that's one yeah. thing she is, is brave. And, and she kind of realized that she was, was being kind of taking the coward's way out. Yeah. Which she's not going to do <laughs> once yeah. she realizes that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. And again, they kind of set us up and then turn it around when Adele picks up the knife and then cuts the bread. <laughs> you know, like I, th I thought it was a really good scene of how they kind of present what might be very dark or contentious, but then it smooths out into something else two, two times in this interaction between them. I, th I thought it was a really good setup and progression of these characters definitely then we get max and grandma guthrie marianne guthrie and a great scene where they walk along the port and they kind of break down how the world works basically mrs guthrie wants to test max and make sure she understands these things poses her the question of why these pirates are still allowed to operate and she says well because the insurance companies are charging huge premiums and giving part of those to the governor so the governor has no incentive to take out those pirates and the same thing goes for the black market he's getting money from that and etc so she kind of proves that she knows how all these things work and even without the pirates actually attacking their presence allows the charge of a premium for this whole shipping process, which is huge to the city of Philadelphia. Yeah, they just have to every once in a while do something to maybe make it look like they're doing more. And maybe they're actually taking quite a few ships. Who knows? But you're right. The point is that all that matters is that they can charge these huge premiums. 
fandomedia.reviews. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how big Philadelphia was. This is way before the founding of the United States of America, for example, but these places were still really big and populous and important. And Philadelphia, especially, in fact, Philadelphia was the actual first capital. Right on. The 13 colonies. And when you hear of the Continental Congress, when they were declaring independence and so on, that's also known as the Philadelphia Congress. Philadelphia was probably the most important city in America at that time. So despite everything really falling into place for Max, she ultimately declines the whole operation because she has learned this lesson inadvertently from Marianne Guthrie, who speaks of Eleanor. And that's who really also learned the lesson, perhaps a little too late, but imparted it to Max about what was important in life and not sacrificing the people you love for these other goals. Yeah, the the other goals don't matter if the people you love don't come along with you. If you get to be the governor of Nassau or you get to be an independent woman running this business or if you get to be a successful pirate or whatever it is and you don't have anyone you love around you to be sharing this in, it loses its meaning. Still though, it's kind of frustrating for me to watch because I feel like, man, you can find someone else to love later on. This is such a perfect plan. <laughs> and you can poison your husband and you'll already be in position there. I don't know. <laughs> kind of leaving Jack out to dry too a little yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Maybe leaving more for him. Maybe it'll be a bigger piece of the pie once he proves himself. You know, I suppose that Marianne Guthrie isn't just going to be like, oh, well, forget the whole thing. She'll find someone else to be her puppet down there if Max isn't going to do it. That's true. It's still operational price still continue. It may lead to a happy ending for Max and and to be able to stay together. Even if it is bittersweet because everything they're sacrificing to have it. Seems like some less happy endings are going to come for Skeleton Island, though. <laughs> Definitely. In fact, we have one of the same dilemmas happening at Skeleton Island. Someone else is forced to choose between the cash and a loved one. And, well, he, he doesn't really think it's much of a choice at all, does he? Silver clearly is more dedicated to Mahdi than he is the cash. Someone like Flint is in the opposite position in a lot of ways. He doesn't have the person he loved anymore. So it's all about these goals. He can't make this choice. He, that choice is taken away from him. Yeah. He only has his goals. He doesn't have the loved ones. And thanks to Billy, Rogers is able to exploit this gap between them. Like Billy says, dig deep enough, you can find something to drive people apart. And this is a really interesting thing that drives them apart. So as Hans pointed out in episode 7, Silver has a backup plan. If they can't just go rescue Marty, well, I'm going to bring the money and make the exchange. And of course, he does this without Flint knowing because there's no way Flint would agree to it. And sure enough, Flint's plan doesn't work. And so now he's like, hey, go get the money. You know, we see Rogers execute a couple men that were part of the team to rescue Maddie. Then he brings out Maddie, gun to her head. And he's like, oh, get the money quick. Show him. Let him see it. Ring the bell. Flint's like, wait, what? What's going on here? And uh, obviously he's frustrated that he's been deceived and undermined, but he's still supportive. You know, he still understands that the men are trying to follow two captains here, basically, and he can't have the spat in front of everyone. So he goes along with it for the moment. But underneath it, of course, we see that Julius was right. As soon as something splits these men apart, plans are going to start to fall apart. Yeah, and that's one of the things that Flynn complains about. He's saying, you're making Julius right. He was, you know, he was just making wild claims, but now he's but now he's speaking complete truth because everything he said is coming true. We have not only lost the cash, but we've lost our alliance. And he and he, then he accuses Silver of losing Mahdi as well. She's not gonna go for any of this. And we pretty much know that he Flint is right about that, and we see this reinforced later. 
Silver is able to win Flint over, at least it seems, at least for the moment, by saying, look, we've been in tough spots before. There have been many times when it seemed like we lost it all. There have been multiple scenes where they've been on ships that were sunk, you know, and here they are still fighting. You know, we've been in a tough spot before. We'll probably be in another one. I've followed you time and time again, whatever sacrifices it took, however much I had to blindly have faith in you. Now it's your turn. Look, we're friends. I followed you. Now be my friend. Follow me. I thought it was a reasonable argument that Silver was making, and Flint, on the surface at least, seemed to agree to it. So on the flip side, Hans doesn't trust Flint, and he tries to warn Silver. And an interesting thing happens. It kind of backfires on him. As right as he seems to be, once he tells Silver, look, can't trust Flint. I'll take him out if you want. And Silver says, no, don't you dare. He's my friend. I trust him on no uncertain terms, no hidden message here. Don't do anything. So now this puts Hans in a spot that if he does something, even if he's right, even if he's justified, Silver won't see it that way. When when Hans catches them red-handed, <laughs> he realizes, I can't do anything. If I try to fight you right now, if you kill me, then Silver's like, oh, I knew he was going to try to get you. Sorry about that, buddy. And if he wins, if Hans gets Flint, he'll be like, I told you not to do anything to Flint. Like, he's just in this lose-lose situation. So he just lets it happen. Try to warn him. He'll just have to see on his own. Yeah, he's in a rock and hard place like the show does so well over and over constantly. It's one of the things that keeps the tension great. And so he just does the best thing he can, which is that he makes sure Silver see Flint steal the cash, run off with it. And then whisper in his ear, now you see what he is. Now you see what he is. But even then, in episode nine, Hans is still uncomfortable, still anxious, still doesn't believe that Silver is going to actually be able to confront Flint and kill him. He does kind of turn out to be wrong. Silver does fight Flint, even though he knows that he probably can't win. Although I think the fact that he chose to fight him is indicative of something else. It's, it's I'm going to say, wrong. It's almost obviously wrong that he fight Flint. But it's just this emotional reaction that he's having. And that's what Flint recognizes in the first place. That's part of why, I don't know how to say this. I don't know how to think this out. But Hans kind of knows that Flint's going to convince Silver. I don't even know if Hans realizes that Flint's going to be able to convince Silver. Because Flint's right. Flint's just right. He, he has this figured out. He is more clear-headed about it if you consider the big picture. You know, if your goal is this revolution, this army, this movement, as opposed to your girlfriend. You know what I mean? You know, maybe it's not fair for me to downplay it so much, but there's a lot of other people involved, and Silver's throwing all of them to the wind to just go get his woman. And Flint's saying, look, it's I understand your emotions, and you are my friend, and I should trust you, but... There's a bunch of other people I should trust. There's a bunch of other people that trust me and you. And you're screwing it all up. We can't do this. I got to find another way. And this conflict between Silver and Flint is really interesting because before it plays out on Skeleton Island, Silver first goes to Rogers to tell him what's happened, to tell him, hey, I need to go after Flint and get this cash. Rogers then turns to Billy after Silver's gone and asks, well, who's going to win? Well, Billy doesn't have a stake in backing one of them over the other because his agenda is to push Rogers to attack. So he kind of prevaricates between the two. He's, he talks about Silver having the upper hand, but how often Flint wins when he even when he doesn't have the upper hand. It's a fair argument because, really, how does Billy really know? He doesn't know yeah. who's going to prevail. So it's an easy argument to make, and it's the one he wants to make because, he again, he wants Rogers to attack, and Rogers is waffling at yeah, this point. Billy's goal is to get revenge on everyone all of them not one or the other all of them so 
Yeah, the best thing he can do is just push Rodgers to violence against him. Now, Rodgers, of course, is aware of this on some level, and at, at a few different points, at least, he tries to shut Billy up. But Rodgers' men are pretty much aligned with Billy on this issue. They don't, you know, like Billy at all, of course, but they also want to go slaughter the pirates. Yeah. You know, that, that's been a, an established theme for quite a while. It would be a goal in general of the British Navy, and a lot of these guys in specific want revenge against the pirates who kill Beringer and other of their comrades and so on, so it's not a tough sell. But Rogers still makes one last attempt to bargain with Mahdi. Not only does this not work, but it kind of blows up in his face emotionally a bit. He seems to have not accepted his own role in his wife's death. He pretty much blames everyone but himself. And Mahdi isn't about to let him get away with that belief. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that you can see it in him. You know, you can tell that he's can't really reject it anymore. And so the only thing left for him to do, like Flint, is now that he's lost his loved one or his loved ones, his child as well, is to go and wreak havoc and to make the best of it. and Push forward with the mission. Yeah. He and has nothing else be- in his life at this point. So I'm just going to do this thing. And he's going to go ahead and be as ruthless as he's been. So the attack does proceed. And this is just a slaughter. There are so many characters that die here. A lot of the characters we never really got to know, but there's some of these crew members have probably been around, unspecifically unnamed, not as recognizable as, say, Joji or DeGroot or Ben Gunn, who is the only named survivor that we have at this point. And he, of course, is spared by Billy because he's the one that let Billy go. And, of course, while all this happening, we have the great resolution between Hands and Silver and Flint as Flint defeats Hands first, doesn't want to kill him because he knows he needs him, which maybe in the back of Silver's head is why he's willing to just charge at Flint, even though he knows he can't win. He maybe also knows that Flint's not going to kill him. If he's not going to kill Hands, he's just going to disarm Silver also. Yeah, he's not going to yeah. kill his friends. So maybe a part of him knows that. I agree with you that it was mostly rage, but he may have also known that. It is interesting because Hands perceives Flint as just using people. And Silver tries to say, no, he's actually my friend. We seem to see that they're actual genuine friends. He's not just using them. But it could be both, too. You know, they could be genuine friends and he's using them. Whatever Flint's motivations are, you know, if someone is going to not kill me because they're my friend or they're going to not kill me because they want to use me, hey, whatever, man, just don't kill me, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But, of course, before there's a chance for anyone to get the upper hand, you'd expect Flint to win that duel. There's explosions and they realize that something's going on and that can't be good. They know that can't be good. They know it's extremely unlikely that their men launch some sort of, you know, surprise attack, so... It's got to be the opposite, and that's really bad news, especially with none of them, the leaders, there. It was something I even speculated on for a moment. Things would have gone down differently if they were on the ship, probably. it's Many things potentially could have happened here, but I just was wondering what would have happened if Flint or Silver were on the ship when they saw that fire. You know, would they have immediately turned the guns and fired on the other ship? Would they have tried to sail away or abandon ship like they did? Would Flint have been clever enough to get the fire put out faster than DeGroote or whoever? I guess none of it matters. You know, what's what's done is done, but uh, it is neat to think about how differently it would have gone with different leadership there. Now, it's in a way, things are sort of reversed from what they were very, very early in the show. One of the things that John Silver used to keep himself alive was the fact that he was the only one who had the Urca schedule the only one that knew the crucial information about where the treasure ship would be. He memorized it after burning the schedule itself. Now, Flint is the only one who knows where that Urca treasure is buried. So now, 
they're left with the same dilemma in a sense, a parallel dilemma of sorts where they have to use this important information to survive because they don't have any other leverage now and they don't really have any soldiers. They're really outnumbered. Woods Rogers has the upper hand, but they do have this one really important bargaining chip. It's a particularly interesting dilemma though, because it's a bargaining chip that Flint and Silver want to use differently. And Silver doesn't know where the treasure is. Only Flint does. So Flint gets to use it the way he wants, I guess. I mean, there's a lot to be seen about how things are going to go here. But it's such a web of potentials of how all these interactions are going to go down. It just can't see. I'm pretty sure that next episode is actually going to be a 10-part episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Roger still has Mahdi and he wants the cash. But Flint obviously isn't the one who is willing to give up the cash for Mahdi in the first place. Yeah. So. It's really a lot might hinge on whether or not Rackham shows up, whether they find their way there. That's a whole other possibility that could change everything. Uh, and if they don't find it, then obviously changes nothing. But then you wonder what the fate of Jack and Featherstone and all those guys will be. Yeah, <laughs> this is all, it's almost comedic. What happens here? Jack is just so full of vigor. He's like, it's all come together. Featherstone seems to agree with him. And then it's just the interrupting. Oh, <laughs> what happened? And he just. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you want to should we yeah <laughs> so we have a little conspiracy theory that fear of skeleton island maybe they took out this guy you know i don't think it could have been featherston because he was in the room with jack you know poison i don't think so but you know they say it was a heart attack but maybe they just didn't want to go to skeleton island because they've heard the stories maybe even there's someone on board who's still loyal to flint and or silver yeah, you never know. Just a little, not a very likely idea, but a theory that, that we want to throw out there. In case it comes to be true, then we get to take credit for it. Yeah. <laughs> and I can imagine something happening like Jack does show up, but in, you know, some turn, suddenly his ship is mutinied in some twist, you know, especially when you think about where things are going, how they're going to tie it all into Treasure Island. Whether Jack shows up or not, it still means certain things have to happen. And how they happen is interesting to think about. And the potential of a mutiny on Jack's ship would be so cool and interesting. It might help explain certain things, but also, oh, they don't have time for that. So I, <laughs> I tend to steer away from that thought. But. Fandomedia.reviews. So one thing I appreciate about Black Sails as a whole is they use a lot of interesting storytelling techniques. They jump around with timelines a lot. Not just like having a flashback, but... A whole season will almost be following two timelines like they did with Flint earlier. And typically they'll have in the beginning portion of an episode characters having a conversation that happened a while ago. And then as the story of the moment continues, they'll keep bringing us back to that conversation that happened a while ago. And we see how it's relevant to how things are unfolding. They sort of did that in the episode with the flashback to Flint training Silver to sword fight. And this moment between them keeps getting interjected throughout the episode. And uh, I think it's a neat way. They do this and that type of thing a lot of times through this show. And I really appreciate the non-linear standard, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. This show is a little bit more about what's happening to these characters than it is the order of events. Does that make sense? It's almost like in history class when you just give you a bunch of dates to memorize. That's not nearly as interesting as learning about the characters involved in these events, you know? Definitely. And I think they were, it was, and I think something really neat is how efficient these, these flashbacks often are. They're not just telling us stories. Sometimes there's another hidden meaning or something else they're telling us. In this case, we're being reminded that Flint has 
military training with swordsmanship. He is not just a great fighter who has a lot of experience. He is trained at a really advanced military academy. And it comes out in these scenes, the action scenes, where he outsmarts people. He doesn't just outfight them. He beats Joji, the silent samurai dude, by moving away from the flat ground where Joji had the advantage into between where there were tight trees near them and a small ravine, which ultimately he used to win the fight. And then he did the same thing with hands. Everyone else who fought hands stood their ground and ended up losing the same way. They would get one of their, they'd get their weapon tied up with one of his. He would use his free hand to take them out. Flint knew what to do. He just kept backing up and then eventually hand and dodging and eventually hands overswung and he struck him on his follow through and of course didn't kill him. He didn't want to kill him. And I really appreciate how this wasn't just like flashy fighting Hollywood style. There was strategy and it was gritty. And it was even set up by the scene where Flint and Silver are fighting each other. Silver even points out, well, everyone fights differently. You're not really showing me how to fight. You're showing me how to beat you. And then we see that Flint's kind of aware of that, that he fights differently against Joji than against Hands, than against silver or whoever else so it's kind of the implied message he's like well yeah but you're all you're going to learn is that i can do different things i don't have one style fighting i adapt my style fighting of course you know (laughs) still the message being sent there silver is still learning things about flint and that comes out in the other aspect of this which is about their backgrounds that's the really other big thing going on in these flashback scenes is that flint's background is out there for silver he knows the details of miranda barlow and thomas hamilton and all this stuff Silver's background is a complete unknown. He basically is called out for your, you know, he's like, I know you're lying about your background. And he's like, yeah, okay, but my background's not important. And he's like, well, if it's not important, then just tell me, you know? Yeah. I, I almost felt like, look, you're better at sword fighting than me. I got to have some sort of advantage here or something like that. Yeah. But, or maybe it's just something that he really doesn't want to talk about. Even after that scene, I was still perplexed by it. I still am slightly wondering why they put it in there. Other than maybe just to remind us that Silver doesn't have a background. It's interesting that Silver does seem to pretty genuinely trust Flint. Like we see scenes with Silver interacting with people outside of Flint showing he has complete trust. Does that make sense? It's not just a show for Flint's sake. Right. We have have that one flashback scene where he's talking to Mahdi and explaining why Flint has accepted him. And the scene with Hands also. When Hans is saying, hey, I'll take him out. He's like, no, don't take him out. You know, yeah. we, we see it's pretty genuine, the trust and friendship that Silver has in Flint. And yet he still won't reveal this bit of his past. So it is quite an odd bit for them to present us with this conflict between the two of them. Audio elements. They had a lot of cool ambient music for Skeleton Island, kind of creepy stuff. And they did a neat trick where they had the music being played by one of the older pirates while... Flint is talking to Dooley also while Hans is talking to Silver. We see that those are parallel conversations. But mm-hmm. at this point, when the music is really key, it's the creepy story of Avery finding the Spanish ship with the soldiers locked inside their own cabin. Maybe they'd eaten parts of each other. And the music plays over it as they show the ruined ship and show Skeleton Island with all its haze and mystery. And it's just really, really strong effect. It is interesting to think about how that visual imagery we have been given 
with different music and different contexts could have been like a joyful, positive adventure. You know, it could have easily been <laughs> like a couple on their honeymoon, getting away to this fantastic island, you know, but no, they definitely were able to use elements of filmmaking to make it dark and mysterious and menacing. The noise and chaos and desperation of the pirates after the fire and the explosion of their magazine, of course, is filled with all sorts of sounds and sights that are tension building. And the noise really adds to the panic and kind of puts you in the moment really well, especially with some of these characters like being in the water. And yeah. that just makes them feel even more helpless. And I tell you what, I would have been abandoning ship off the front end. Away from the Exploder <laughs> magazine in the back, off the far side, away from the <laughs> the approaching British soldiers. Oh, man, I, I understand, like, there must have been a lot of chaos and suddenness to them having to jump over the ship. But once again, I can't help but wonder if Flint had been there, if it might have been a more organized getting off the ship. I think it's cheating to call this an audio element, but I, I wanted to take note of the speech got by the... I don't know, the old man that sailed with Avery. We'll call him the old man in the sea because his speech mm -hmm. was about the sea and how, yeah. you know, you don't, you shouldn't give it up and how you should treasure this life of adventure while you can. Jack really seems to like this, partly because the pirate praises him, too. Yeah, he's he like, I've heard of Jack. you. Yeah, yeah, he really, and of course, we've talked about how Jack really cares about his reputation and how he's going to be remembered. So he's got a big smile. He's like, yeah, all right. This yeah. guy is going to get us there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, oh, no, oh, well. <laughs> One other really interesting tidbit was when Mrs. Hudson found Eleanor's journal and is reading about, and, and we hear Eleanor's voice as she's reading the journal, which was a bit of a parallel theme to the Avery journals, but Avery's not a character that, that we have any sort of connection to because he's not a character in the show, but I, I wanted to point that out anyway. It also does help clarify what she's reading exactly. It might not have been clear that that was Eleanor's journal if we hadn't heard her voice reading it. Definitely. Visual elements. Eleanor also appears with a little bit of a visual trick. She's, it, it's like she's in Woods Rogers' peripheral vision. You can't see her head, but it's clearly her and she's knitting. So there's also the clicking clacking sounds, which is a bit of an audio element. But it's more of a visual thing because it's like her presence is there. But when Madi confronts him with the reality of the fact that it's his fault, the clicking stops and she fades and his eyes get a little watery. And it's, it hits hard. Yeah, I thought that was a really good scene. Again, that sort of surreal presence of a person who's already died that they did in the past with Flint and Miss Barlow. Now they're doing it again with Rogers and Eleanor. And it really did add a sort of spookiness when we're already spooked out about this island in the first place. I thought that was a really good scene. So one thing they do in the show a lot that I appreciate, both to help set a tone and because it's realistic for this time period, there's a lot of dark lighting. The opening scene of when Rogers is writing to find the journal, it's nighttime and it's really dark. You can't even tell for sure who that is until they finally reveal Rogers' face. But a lot of times they use this dark lighting to create contrast. The scene that we have of Max in Philadelphia talking to Anne about how she's not going to take the Guthrie's proposal because her relationship with her is more important and it closes with that scene that I can imagine some of the people watching the show because they want swashbuckling pirate adventure. Maybe we're bored with this, you know, sort of romantic, dramatic scene between these two women. But, you know, they're sitting there on the bench in the dark with the snow falling with these, you know, city buildings around. And that scene suddenly cuts to this wide open sea with a bright sun of day and these ships on the ocean. It was a huge visual difference from this dark moment in a city with two people to this broad space out in the open in the sea. I really thought that was an awesome moment. 
Yeah, there's a couple other neat visuals that were both smaller scale and larger scale. I really liked, just as a small detail, seeing things through those little scopes. The periscopes are looking there from far away from one ship to another, and you see things from their perspective. I like that little device. But the most stunning things, I think, were the waypoint on the way to Skeleton Island and Skeleton Island itself. Some of the shots of the ships going up the river there, that was just incredible. That stuff is shot near Cape Town. They added some fog with fog machines, but that's just an amazing location that's kind of undisturbed by humans at this point still and fits really well. They added that wrecked ship that looked super creepy. Great touches. You know, another little thing that I appreciated, when we do get the flashbacks, there's a slight tint, maybe a bluish or yellowish tint to kind of clarify that it's out of time. And another thing that happened in this episode I specifically took note of it but I think they do little things like this a lot but a fly just buzzed on a flint's face at one point and for me at least that helps remind me that they're really out there filming this they're, they're not in some blue screen in some room you know what I mean I think that they do a good job of creating this world and part of how they do that is by finding this island to film by building these ships to film by being out there in nature you know with the sand and the ocean and the wind and the bugs and everything else to create this feeling that we get that's bringing us into this world final thoughts okay let's talk about our favorite moments from episodes eight and nine sean what do you got as usual i have a hard time picking a favorite moment that's part of how you know it's a good show and i've even mentioned some of my highlight moments throughout this, but I think one that was an interesting take on things that kind of stuck with me a little bit was the conversation with Flint and Silver when Silver had maybe sort of a devious attitude. He's like, you know, what are we even doing anyway? You know, what if all this stuff that we're trying to do that we think will bring us out of this horrible state, what if that's just it? What if the world and life is just a horrible state, you know? And Flint says... I don't think, I just can't believe that we're made that poorly, he says. You know, that there's no way that we can't survive without this state of slavery and conflict. I feel like, you know, I'm kind of paraphrasing his thought, but, you know, we're born free. We should be able to live free. That's just, you know, that's Flint's take on a world. As terrible as things are, as cynical as he might seem, in the end, he really believes. He has this faith in humanity that this revolution will work, that people should be able to live freely. He does admit, though, that it's probably going to have to get dirtier before they're done. You know, yeah, you know, that we are going to, moving from where we're at now to this ideal that we're looking toward, there's going to be some spots in the middle where some dark stuff's going to happen. But he still seemed to have faith in the end that it would be worth it. Right on. I'm not sure for myself either what my favorite moments were. I really loved, like I said, those visual overhead shots. Those shots of the ships as they headed towards Skeleton Island. The waypoints and the island itself. Really great shots. I, I'm not sure that it gets any better than that. As far as plot elements, I really like how this culminates for so many characters what's coming down to what matters most in life to them. That's what it's boiling down to, like their essence as a human being, what everything that is the most important to them, and that's what everything is being based on. And I like how intense that is for, for all these characters. You can't put yourself in their place because the setting is so out of place for our reality, but you can understand their dilemmas intellectually and still feel them emotionally because these are about human relationships and trust and purpose. 
Well, that's our show. Only one more episode left. We'll be back with that final episode, our final thoughts on Black Sails as a series. And we're expecting to have our friend from the Pirate History Podcast as a guest, so it'll be an extra good conversation. Until then, I'm the old fan in the sea. And I'm Ben Fan. <laughs>